Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm Dave McCrae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today I'm speaking to Eve Warburton who's a PhD candidate in the Department of Political and Social Change at the Australian National University. Eve, thanks for joining us. Thanks Dave. Eve is researching natural resource policy and today I'll be speaking to her about resource nationalism in Indonesia, an issue that has been generating an increasing number of headlines over the past five to six years. Eve, could I start by asking you, what is resource nationalism and how does it manifest in Indonesia? So, uh, in the broader sense, resource nationalism describes efforts by state to assert more control over their resource sectors. And they do that in order to extract more rent from them, more value from them. And so usually it's associated with commodity booms. So as prices go up, uh, states necessarily want a bigger piece of the pie, and that's often at the expense of private investors uh, and private companies. Uh, so this can describe a whole range of policy prescriptions. Uh, in the more extreme cases, you can get nationalization of entire industries or companies, uh, and then you get sort of, I guess, uh, weaker examples of, of nationalist policies like just simply increases in taxes uh, for private mining companies. In, in Indonesia, we're seeing a kind of a mixture. We're seeing uh, policies that demand companies pay more royalties, uh, policies that, that introduce uh, more divestment requirements, divestment obligations for foreign companies. Uh, and we've also seen a real emphasis on, on downstream processing. So uh, in January 2014, the government introduced a ban on, on, on the export of certain raw minerals. And the idea is that we need to compel companies to kind of invest in the processing of these minerals uh, before they go off for export. And then finally, we're seeing the, the government begin to uh, put a real emphasis on renegotiating existing contracts with foreign companies such that they begin to reflect these other changes that I've just mentioned. So, so changing contracts such that companies pay more royalties, pay more taxes, um, increase local content and increase their divestment. So that's kind of how, these, how resource nationalism manifests in Indonesia. What's driving this sort of resource nationalism we've seen in Indonesia sort of over recent years. Has Indonesia been getting a particularly bad deal on its national resources compared to other countries? I believe that it's it's driven by sort of multiple multiple logics, multiple factors. And and the first one I, I would identify, this is one that's referred to a lot in, in the industry reports on and kind of media reports on resource nationalism, and that is that it's driven in part by a narrow rent-seeking logic. And so what this means is proponents or people who lobby for nationalist policies do so um, in order to create opportunity for private gain. Um, so basically it means that politically connected elites um, sort, of, sort of stand to benefit from policies like uh, downstream processing, from forced divestment, or from uh, forcing companies to increase local content, as in uh, engaging with local companies. And this is really common in Indonesia, and we know that there are uh, uh, important political elites like the Vice President Yusuf Kala, uh, the head of Golkar, Aborizo Bakri, um, the Luhut Panjaitan, a key player in, in Jokowi's um, executive, and that they have direct interest in the sector. They have mining businesses. And so, of course, um, they will benefit from their closeness to, to things like the, the, con the renegotiation of contracts um, and, and divestment requirements. And, of course, a bigger state means more opportunity for kickbacks for bureaucrats and politico-business elites. So I think that's one part of the story. But it, it's not all about rent-seeking, and often it's not the most sort of proximate driving cause. Um, and I think we need to sort of look at the ideological underpinnings and the political framings of these policies. So the second, I think, uh, driving logic here is a developmentalist one. 
And what this sort of speaks to is the way in which uh, state actors increase government intervention in the resource markets um, to achieve sort of broad economic and industrial goals. And that there's this consensus amongst political and policy elites that state intervention is the necessary way uh, for cultivating more value from the sector. It kind of reflects a developmentalist and statist ideological orientation um, within the state. Um, and so the third one, though, and I think this is an important one, one that's become much more important in Indonesia, obviously, since democratic reform, and that is the political dimension to nationalist policies. Because political elites engage with and leverage um, mass preferences, pu public preferences for nationalist policies. And you see this most clearly around election time when politicians sort of engage in uh, nationalist outbidding and they sort of take a much more combative approach to resource issues because they believe that that's what the public wants. Um, and while there's no sort of polling on these issues, um, the media certainly plays it up. And so this political dimension to resource nationalism, um, I think, is equally important when we're trying to understand uh, its emergence and indeed its ongoing appeal um, after the commodity boom. So, I mean, beyond those three drivers, going back to my original question, can we say Indonesia has been getting a particularly bad deal on its natural resources compared to other countries? In many ways, it has, in, a, in the sense that if you look historically at the Indonesian case, the, the mining sector has always been dominated by uh, big foreign companies um, and that the contracts that were drawn up um, with these companies, especially back in the early days, back in the 60s, um, were were very much uh, very favourable uh, for the company. And I think that the sense that during the commodity boom that a lot of these contracts that couldn't be changed, that kind of during the life of the contract, none of the legislative changes that the state would bring in would affect these contracts. And so during the recent commodity boom, there was a real sense uh, that the state and the public were not seeing enough of the benefits uh, from the mining sector and particularly from um, the sectors where these big uh, multinational companies operate. Um, and I think part of the other problem is that in Indonesia, it's hard for the public to see, to, to see any direct benefits to them. Mining companies, uh, they employ fewer people than, say, uh, companies in the agricultural sector. Um, they need highly skilled people. It's a capital-intensive industry. And for all these reasons, there is a kind of a general sense, a general sentiment that Indonesians themselves haven't played enough of a role in the sector. Um, and so I think that perception, and indeed that perception is based on a reality, um, and a historical reality, I think is, is what feeds into um, these, these, the nationalist mobilisation and indeed the nationalist design of some of these policies. Okay, if I can take you back to the developmentalist uh, logic of it, this idea that the state should be controlling uh, resources to achieve a better outcome for the country. I mean, is that uh, a particularly dominant school of economic thought within Indonesia? And, and uh, if so, I mean, how has that taken hold over time? Yes, it is. And we can look back at Indonesian history, uh, economic history, and see that uh, this sort of this impulse for state intervention and um, this ideological orientation uh, is, is something that has, I guess, coloured Indonesian history uh, since the independence period. And I should also probably mention here that uh, within the Indonesian constitution itself, under Article 33, it, it, it outlines that, uh, that Indonesia's natural resources belong to the people and are to be managed by the state. So it actually articulates there in the constitution this idea that, um, that it is the state and, and 
uh, the state must control and must regulate uh, natural resources for the benefit of the public good and for the benefit of the people. If I could cut in, I mean, on face value, that sounds yeah. a fairly unremarkable statement uh, that, you know, the state regulates, controls national resources for the public good. Um, I mean, is there something distinctly Indonesian about, the, about that, that approach? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, I think in resource-rich countries around the world, we, we do find very, very similar um, uh, constitutional um, yeah, similar articles in, in constitutions around the world. Um, and in fact, you know, in Latin American countries, it's far stronger. Um, this, you know, that the, the state's control over the sec over the, over its resource sectors. Um, but, but to sort of reflect more on this, uh, the developmentalist, uh, ideology within Indonesian policymaking, um, we can see that throughout the Suharto era, uh, from the 1960s to the 1998, we sort of have waves of, of economic nationalism where sort of nationalist policymaking uh, was far stronger and, and those, those waves of, of nationalist influence tended to take place at a time when the economy was doing very well, um, often when, when, it was, when it was experiencing windfalls from the oil sector. And so um, that, that phenomenon has, has led to this, to I guess what, what scholars of Indonesia's economy call Sadli's law. Um, and what Sadli said, he was an economist, said that uh, good times lead to bad policy in Indonesia. And of course, for a liberal economist, bad policy is economic nationalism. And, and uh, so in, throughout Indonesian history, when the economy was doing well, and it was generally doing well because of a boom in the resource sectors, um, we tended to have na more nationalist policy, policy making. Um, and in many ways, we can sort of say that's what's happening again today. I think the difference today is that as the economy now is beginning to experience um, a contraction, where Indonesia is now slow, its economy is now slowing, uh, what we haven't seen is a rolling back of these nationalist policies. And in fact, some would argue that uh, we've seen a sort of um, an expansion of, of nationalist policies, not just the re not just the resource sectors, but in other sectors of the economy. And that I would argue we could um, we could. Uh, relate back to this idea that there is a strong ideological consensus amongst the political and policy elite in favour of nationalist intervention, but also that politics really matters now in a democratic Indonesia. And the way in which the public is engaged in nationalist debate around resource policies has really kind of contributed to uh, the ongoing appeal of these policies um, in the post-boom period. Okay. And um, I mean, what about President Jokowi himself? Do we, do we get a sense of where he stands on the management of uh, national resources, I guess, particularly in this context, uh, mining resources, mm. and, and is there a distance between his personal position and, and that of his party, PDIP? I wish we knew what Jokowi was thinking and what his position was on, on this and many other matters, but, but um, he has been inconsistent, often incoherent, and certainly unpredictable uh, when it comes to his position on particularly on uh, matters like the renegotiation of foreign mining contracts uh, or on issues like the, the mineral export ban. Um, and I think there are a couple of reasons for that. The, the first reason is that uh, I think that Jokowi, if we go back to the presidential campaigns, uh, they were quite. This was quite an unusual presidential campaign in two, back in 2014 when Jokowi was, was pitted against uh, Prabowo Subianto. Prabowo Subianto sort of set the tone for the campaign and it was aggressive and assertive in his nationalist um, language 
Um, and indeed, he spoke of resource issues in a very um, aggressive manner. And Jokoi was less, um, I guess, less aggressive in his language, but indeed he followed suit in an, and there was a sort of a nationalist outbidding going on during the elections, including on issues like standing strong in the face of corporate pressure when it came to the mining sector, being strong on the export ban and, and you know, demonstrating a commitment to industrialization of the mining sector. Uh, and so we shouldn't be surprised, in fact, that in the last year since Jokowi's been in power, that in general we've seen a kind of continuation of these of these policies that were introduced uh, under Yuriono. But at the same time, Jokowi went ahead and appointed Sudirman Said as the Minister for Energy and Mineral Resources. Now, Sudirman Said is a pragmatist. He's not a party man. He's a, a skilled and, a relative, and, and widely understood to be a clean bureaucrat. This was a step away from the tradition under Yuriono, which was to appoint party members to this ministry. And so there was a sense that he was, Jokowi was going to be more pragmatic. He might have had to have taken the nationalist stance in the elections, uh, but with the appointment of Sudirman Said, we might see a kind of a shift away from the nationalist position, especially because the economy uh, was, was, was coming under much more pressure, the trade deficit was widening, and perhaps we would see um, a rollback of some of these nationalist laws. But in fact, in more recent months, Jokowi has done many backflips, and he has often abandoned the position that, that, that of, of his minister on these issues. And, and I think part of that is because he is under immense pressure from different vested interests within the executive. And I'm speaking specifically here of the role that uh, Yusuf Kala, the vice president, would like to play um, in these decisions, these strategic decisions and resource issues, and indeed the role of Lukut Panjaitan. And these two individuals have their own interests in the mining sector. Uh, they both would like to exert significant power over the decisions that are made in the sector. They both have huge political egos, of course, and they don't like one another. So Jokowi's position often seems to sort of oscillate between siding with Luhut's position on these questions, Sudirman Said's position on these questions, and the vice president's position. And what we have then is uh, a very kind of incoherent set of, of um, or an incoherent uh, rhetoric around what direction the government uh, will go in terms of resource policy. Um, and I should also add that after a recent cabinet reshuffle, Jokowi appointed a rather controversial figure Rizal Rumley, an economist, to the position of coordinating minister for maritime affairs. And, and he has uh, added even more kind of conflict and contradiction um, to the government's position on these mining issues. He's quite nationalistic uh, and has been very critical of other members of the cabinet and their approach to the mining sector problems. Okay. And I mean, you've mentioned the pressure that Jokowi faces through vested interests from senior figures in his government. Another thing we've seen in October has been a cover story in Indonesia's major news weekly, Tempo, that caricatures Jokowi wearing a gold jacket, signing an agreement with Freeport on a podium draped with a US flag, which I'm sure is not the sort of caricature any Indonesian president would want to see of themselves. Could you explain a bit about the context of that caricature and what sort of pressure that applies to Jokowi? Sure. So, so the cover of Tempo magazine that you're referring to um, is 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 referring to the, the 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 headline story in the magazine, which is all about the the government's uh, ongoing and fraught negotiation of the Freeport contract. Uh, Freeport is the oldest and biggest and most profitable mining company in Indonesia. Indeed, it runs the most profitable uh, gold mine in the world. 
uh, and it kind of looms large, I guess, um, in Indonesian history and in the sector itself. Um, and it's a very uh, controversial company for lots of different reasons. It works out of Papua. It has a long list of kind of environmental and human rights abuses to its name. Um, but it's also the biggest taxpayer in, in the country. And so it's a really important company for Indonesia and for the Indonesian economy. Now, Freeport is, uh, is one of the companies that has um, been un undertaking this sort of years-long renegotiation of its contract. And it's kind of at the pointy end now. And it's been like this for some time. And basically, what the it, it, Freeport has given a number of significant concessions to the Indonesian government on increasing its royalties that it pays to the state, uh, on actually reducing the size of its concession, uh, also on increasing local content, uh, and indeed its divestment requirements. But what Freeport wants in return is an early extension of its contract. So rather than by law, it should only be requesting extension in 2019. What we have now in 2015 is Freeport saying, we've agreed to all these conditions. Now you give us certainty for our contract. And after that, we will invest in billions. They're about to invest in a, a multi-billion dollar expansion of the mine. Now, this process has been incredibly politicized. And, and for many Indonesians, I guess the Indonesian public, but it's certainly within the Indonesian government and within Indonesian politics, would argue that to provide an early extension to break the Indonesian law, essentially, for Freeport, uh, is, is a humiliation. Um, it demonstrates the willingness of the Indonesian government to continually bend to the will of Freeport. And so it's become very politicised. Now, at the same time, Sudirman Said, the minister, who Jokowi appointed and who Jokowi gave a mandate to, to, to sort out the contract, to get it signed, and to essentially, as long as the government gets a good deal, Jokowi said, um, go and sort it out. And so Dirman Said essentially is trying to do this and has tried to shield Freeport from some of the vested interests, trying to kind of get in on the deal, and has basically said, we will extend your contract, we will change the law, uh, as long as you've agreed to all these, these different conditions. Uh, now... The reason that we see this image on the front of the magazine of Jokowi sort of in a golden jacket signing a document on an American flag is that the media got hold of this. Freeport made an announcement on their website. The Indonesian media got a hold of this and said, look, Jokowi is doing it. He's bending to the will of Freeport uh, and he's, and he's going he's gonna to change the law for the sake of the Freeport contract, which is an incredibly simplistic way of looking at, of looking at how this deal is being done. And what this really, I think, demonstrates is, and I should probably add there, sorry, that, you know, Rizal Ramli, Jokowi's own appointment, uh, a recently appointed coordinating minister, uh, came out into the press and uh, attacked Sudirman Said uh, for this decision. So, and of course, what, what Jokowi did very suddenly is say, oh, no, I haven't signed anything. Please, 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 I haven't signed anything. Nothing is nothing is going forward. We're going to, we're going to abide by the law. And what this shows is that... Uh, Two things. First of all, the media, it plays a really significant role in, uh, in sort of shaping the nationalist discourse in the mine, around uh, mining sector issues and particularly around Freeport. And the media and, and NGOs and civil society generally all take the nationalist position when it comes to these sorts of issues. And actually, there's no polling that sort of says, that it gauges public opinion on this matter. 
what politicians are then forced to do is to gauge public opinion by the media coverage. And the media coverage is, is, is quite assertively, almost aggressively nationalist. And so Jokowi is sensitive to this. And he's proven himself to be quite fickle, in fact. Um, and while he gave to and Said that mandate, when he saw the way that, that, that saw the media outburst and, and we, he had his own uh, executive and people in parliament as well criticising him aggressively, he's essentially sort of uh, retracted and, and sort of told the public at least, I'm not sure what he's telling Freeport, but he's told the public at least not to worry, just to, that, that he would never do this, he would never betray the country like this. Um, and so I think it, it really does demonstrate um, just, I guess, uh, yes, the, how controversial um, these, the Freeport contract specifically, but these, these mining contracts generally are. It's interesting. You talk about Indonesia's unusual policies, the challenges Indonesia faces with an economic slowdown. But one of the things that struck me in some of your writing on this issue is the point you make that when people discuss resource nationalism, it's generally considered implicitly good or implicitly bad. But when you look at the specific measures that Indonesia has put in place as a result of resource nationalism, things like the ban on exports of raw materials, things like renegotiating contracts, can you say that Indonesia today is either better off or worse off as a result of those measures? So, yeah, so first of all, yeah, the general, I guess, feel, especially amongst economists, when they talk about resource nationalism, is that um, it, it is it has a net it has a poor it has a bad effect on the economy and it has a bad effect because you know if you you you, you shut out uh, uh foreign investment private investment um you stifle uh innovation and technology development uh and you open up space for corruption and rent seeking so essentially state intervention in the resource sectors is, is going to be bad in the end now when it comes to the the specific policies in indonesia i, I don't take that position i try to use the term in a much more neutral way and, and i'm more interested in the drivers as opposed to the kind of net um, outcomes but uh, in terms of the specific policies in the Indonesian case, like renegotiating contracts, even though the, the process has been incredibly fraught, and I think Indonesia's business reputation has suffered as a result internationally, it, it, the state has essentially gotten what it wants in many cases, and it has gotten an increase in royalties, and in many cases I think that is fair, uh, and uh, it has managed to, to leverage a better deal in terms of uh, forcing companies to divest earlier and divest more to, to local shareholders and to the state. Um, and so I think long term, it seems as though from these contract renegotiations, the state is getting a better deal. Uh, now, if we're going to talk about what that effect that has had on new investment, it's still a little hard to tell. Um, many within the industry would argue that um, this, these, these, the, the nationalist policies have contributed to the real uh, sluggish investment in new exploration. Uh, Indonesia is a country with huge mineral potential, uh, but investment exploration is quite limited. Um, and so some people would argue that this is because of these nationalist policies. Although I actually think that decentralization of the, of the mining sector, which is a whole other issue, has had a really negative impact on, on that aspect. Um, but when it comes to a different policy, so the export ban, it's very clear that the, the short-term pain that Indonesia is experiencing as a result um, is significant. You know, just this, this huge drop in, export, in, uh, in exports 
uh, really hurt the budget and you can see and the trade deficit and you can see that very clearly but Indonesian government always knew that right I mean it was never about short-term or fast revenue generation that particular policy was about long-term industrialization it was having a vision for a more sophisticated mining industry now we won't really know whether that's worked for some time it's still going to be years before these uh, smelters that are now being uh, built that are that are receiving investment particularly from China um, and so we can't really tell later until I'd say a few more years down the track. But I guess the big question, Dave, is are these benefits or are, is this, are these, um, yeah, are these policies in the end going to lead to more distributional benefits? Is, is, the, is the increased revenue that the government claims it will, um, will, it will generate long term, will that flow into state coffers and what will the state do with that money? Um, or will we see the kind of old and, I guess, somewhat mundane story now of, of sort of oligarchic interests and, and business tycoons? Are they the ones that are really going to benefit uh, from, these, from these policies? Are they the ones that are stand to benefit the most from, from things like divestment of foreign mining interests um, and indeed from a nascent domestic smelting industry? Um, and again, this is something that we have to follow, we have to observe and follow closely uh, in the coming years. Uh, because these are long-term objectives, not really short-term objectives. You know, uh, beyond Indonesia itself, we, we haven't spoken much about the rent-seeking uh, driver, mm. the idea of vested uh, interest seeking to, to enrich themselves. I mean, putting aside Indonesia, can you identify really clear constituencies uh, within Indonesia who have definitely benefited from these kind of resource nationalism policies over the last five to six years? Yeah, I think that's a really important question, and it's one that I ask myself in my research uh, all the time. And I, and I, it's important to ask that question because a lot of the arguments and all the critiques of resource nationalism are based on this idea, or an assumption actually, um, that that it's driven primarily by rent seeking, and it's an assumption that's made about Indonesia all the time, but also about other countries. And what we really have to do is examine. Uh, who precisely benefits? From, can we identify rent seekers who actually then go on to benefit hugely from these policies? And and what my research really has revealed, especially, and I'll talk specifically here about the export ban, is that in fact it's really quite difficult to identify a clear set of constituents who lobbied for the ban and then who went on to 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 benefit hugely from the ban. I think that. We can see, I think the ban was driven primarily by uh, a de developmentalist ideology and a vision for the sector as being a more sophisticated and industrialised sector. But I think along the way, there were particular elites, political elites, and we can identify them, who did lobby for the ban, uh, and who, but who saw the ban as an opportunity for them in this kind of new and, and growing smelting sector. I think they saw opportunity for themselves and for their own private business interests. But I think actually a lot of them have sort of fallen by the wayside and, and haven't done very well. Uh, there were a couple of who, who, uh, who early on signed an MOU with Freeport and Newmont, for example, to, to access, uh, for cheap access to their ores um, for the smelting company. And in, in the end, that MOU fell apart. Um, so I, I think actually the rent-seeking argument or the rent-seeking critique um, is very hard to prove in, in some of these in some in some of these policy areas. Um, at the same time, we still don't know, in fact, who will benefit from things like the foreign divestment requirements, um, and and who will benefit from the local content requirements. I think that there are lots of examples where we can see 
politically connected uh, business elites getting access to contracts with big companies like Freeport uh, or Newmont um, or BHP, and, and you know that they've gotten access to a contract to a tender because of their political connections. That's sort of an old, as I said before, an old story. But when it comes to all these these different nationalist policies, I think it's still too early to tell. And I think that we shouldn't underestimate the fact that within the state, there are individuals and there are coalitions who are trying to prevent uh, rent seekers from taking advantage um, of these nationalist laws. Um, and it's a very competitive and very fraught uh, arena. Um, and so I don't think that we can say that, that, that these policies are necessarily driven by and uh, rent seekers primarily um, because we can't see that they've benefited hugely from these policies just yet anyway. Uh, Eve, it's been fascinating to talk to you and there's a lot more I could ask you, but I'm afraid we're out of time. Uh, so thanks very much for providing your insights today. I thank you for the opportunity. It was great. That was Eve Warburton, PhD candidate in the Department of Political and Social Change at the Australian National University. And you can find all the Talking Indonesia podcast episodes at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or subscribe to the series via iTunes or Stitcher. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast.